Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. We also got Jane Rickards, a Taiwan-based freelance journalist and the former head of the Taiwan Foreign Correspondence Club. Jane, good to have you back. Good evening, Keith. And also with us today, we have Dr. Bill Stanton. He is the former director of the American Institute in Taiwan. Seems like he missed uh, having that director title on his business cards because he is currently the director of the Center for Asia Policy at National Tsinghua University. Uh, director, welcome. Oh, good evening, Keith. On the show today, Taiwan is famous. Donald Trump served notice to China with a phone call that Beijing is likely to see as a grave offense. U.S. diplomatic concerns are being raised tonight after Taiwan's president reached out to President-elect Donald Trump. It also has the potential to aggravate and uh, anger Beijing because, of course, Beijing considers Taiwan kind of an upstart renegade province. And Mr. Trump's phone call may be seen as support for Taiwan independence, a raw nerve for China's leadership. So it's kind of a big deal. In fact, the exchange touched the most sensitive spot for China's foreign policy. Well, no surprise, Donald Trump has a long history of sensitive spot touching. Yes, the whole world is talking about the call. That is a 10-minute call between U.S. President-elect Donald Trump and President Tsai Ing-wen. That broke 40 years of diplomatic precedent and sent the world into a Taiwan frenzy. After the news of the call broke Saturday morning, Taiwan time. Uh, So we're going to be talking about that, obviously. Uh, But other stuff is going on in Taiwan, too. It's not all about you, Mr. Trump. Uh, In the second half, we'll be looking at the passage of the long-anticipated and highly controversial amendment to the Labor Standards Act. Uh, Then the KMT's call for a national referendum on food safety, uh, upping the stakes there just a little bit. And we'll take a look at the government's decision to move forward with a plan to clamp down even harder on the ride-sharing app Uber. Uh, But before we get to any of that, we must return, of course, to Trumpland. It's the only place to be these days. Uh, You heard in those clips the initial reporting on the call was somewhat breathless pronouncements of gloom and doom and danger, uh, with many raising concerns about what China's response could be. The working narrative uh, that we saw in the first couple of days from many media outlets uh, was that, you know, Trump just doesn't understand foreign policy. Uh, He didn't know where this red line was, and he just blundered into this call. He just didn't know any better, and he made a call he shouldn't have made, or he accepted a call he shouldn't have made. Of course, the story that's come out so far is uh, quite a bit more nuanced than that, and we'll cover that in a little bit. Uh, But... You know, it really didn't help matters right off the bat when Trump answered the criticism of the call with a series of tweets, signature tweets. Uh, We got to dwell on these tweets for just a second. Uh, And the only way to do them justice is uh, to read them in the voice of the man himself, or at the very least, in the voice of a talented impersonator. Uh, So here is John D. DeMonico reading Trump's first two tweets, responding to media criticism following the call. The president of Taiwan called me today to wish me congratulations on winning the presidency. Thank you. 
interesting how the U.S. sells Taiwan billions of dollars of military equipment, but I should not accept a congratulatory phone call. He followed those up、uh, a day or two later with these tweets directed at China. Did China ask us if it was okay to devalue their currency, making it hard for our companies to compete? Heavily tax our products going into their country, or to build a massive military complex in the middle of the South China Sea? I don't think so. That audio was courtesy of Slate Magazine's Trump Cast, a frequent interview series aimed at providing in-depth coverage of all things Trump. Big, 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 big thanks to them. So, for many observers, bellicose blunder is the impression that they walked away with.、Uh, and if you're following the tweets, I can understand why you might reach that conclusion. But if you followed the story for even just a little bit longer, you know, especially as the week unfolded and we got. Uh, some of additional reporting coming out.、Uh, the fact of the matter is that there were a number of people in the Trump transition team with a long history of advocating for Taiwan that were working behind the scenes to help make the call happen.、Uh, it's also come to light, of course, that lobbying efforts from none other than former U.S. Senator Bob Dole may have played a role.、Uh, we can discuss how big of a role we think that might have been.、Uh, but the main take-home point here is that. You know, this was not just Donald Trump spur of the moment going off, receiving a phone call. Obviously, a lot of people were involved here, so、uh, a lot to kind of sift through, and we are going to sift through it in just a second. But before we get to that, I just want to hear from our two commentators,、uh, Bill and Jane. What was your initial response when this news broke in the first place? You know, you hear about it. First thought in your head was,、uh, "Well, I was surprised, but I was extremely happy about it. In fact." Since、uh, I'm not a supporter of Trump,、uh, I it was the first positive move that I thought he had made, and it occurred to me at that time that it probably also I immediately assumed, of course, actually that the call had been arranged ahead of time, because knowing Tsai Ing-wen, President Tsai, I didn't think she would make a call out of the blue like that. And second of all, it was unlikely that the president-elect would have received it. So it seemed to me I know some of the advisers on the Trump team because、uh, they frequently visit、uh, Taiwan. People like Stephen Yates, and I've read others like Peter Navarro, and I know that they have a much more positive view, as you've indicated, toward Taiwan. So it occurred to me that there was something afoot. And that, in fact, we might see a more positive、uh, approach to Taiwan than we have in the past.、Um, we still that remains to be seen whether there will be follow up as well. All right, and Jane, what、uh, what was going through your head? I'm like Bill. I was delighted,、um, and I was trying to figure. Even then, I was just trying to figure out what was going on. And by a process of deduction, I also sort of figured it was、um, probably on the advice of、um, the transition team and his Asia advisers. Um, like Bill, I think it's very unlikely that President Trump, well, President-elect Trump, would just pick up the phone for anyone because probably everyone's trying to call him right now.、Mm. And、um, I think that if the Taoyuan angle was just laughable. Oh yeah. Yes. The,、uh, of course,、uh, that Trump is、uh, planning or has、uh, made moves towards making hotels in Taoyuan City, and so some people were saying、uh, this is just another example of Trump、uh, using his office as president, president-elect, to kind of、uh, buttress his business interests. But 
seems pretty questionable. Yeah, well, um, that if Trump was motivated by the hotel d- development, um, that defies economic logic because that's sort of saying that he ignored the world's largest market, China, mm-hmm. in favour of a little hotel development near Taiwan's airport. Which I believe he also has business interests in China, uh, if, if yes. I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, because he'd be risking his business interests in China. Mm-hmm. And that was just funny because mm-hmm. of all the public hearings and the protests mm-hmm. over land expropriation. And um, the Talia Natropolis project has now sort of gone down in the Western media as this sort of investment destination, which sort of persuaded Trump to go to the dark side of the force. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Especially seeing Chinese tourists are down too, so it's not a good time to go in for hotels. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No kidding. All right. So uh, clearly a lot more to get into in terms of what the significance of the call was and what it'll mean for Taiwan, what it'll mean for the U.S., what it'll mean for everybody. But let's kind of unwind the events of this week and the revelations that have kind of spilled out bit by bit. Uh, Gavin, first off, so obviously everybody was concerned about the reaction from China. Uh, Many in the media predicting, uh, you know, a huge bellicose reaction uh, shattering the U.S.-China relationship. Relatively muted. In fact, yeah, Beijing just threw one of its regular tizzy fits, didn't it, really? And then the White House came out and basically said, hey, nothing to see here. Our policy hasn't changed, contrary to what you might be reading into this phone call. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, China demanded that the United States ban Tsai Ing-wen, President Tsai Ing-wen, from transiting in the United States on her way to Central America next month. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, China's done very little about it, hasn't it? It's three days of tizzy fit, and then it's all now gone away. Yeah, there's been a couple of professors at various universities who have made somewhat more strident calls for uh, China to perhaps cut off ties with the U.S. if this sort of thing continues. But that's not what we've been hearing from the more uh, official lines. So for now, uh, that's what we're left with. Let's take a look at this question of where the call came from, though. Uh, and uh, just start off with, uh, we, we, we discovered that uh, perhaps uh, Trump's team may have been thinking about this for some time. Apparently so, rumour has it, because all these are is rumours. We've had rumours about this and rumours about this and speculation about this and speculation about that. But apparently Trump's transition team apparently were planning this phone call for about six months. One, one, that's one time frame that came up. I believe six months they've been planning this for. A little bit speculative, but that's a that's possible time been, frame. That's what's been reported. And then, of course, there was, like you said earlier, there was reports that Senator, you former U.S. Senator Bob Dole worked behind the scenes in his capacity at a Washington law firm to instigate this phone call. Mm-hmm. That was denied by just about everybody. In Taiwan. In Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And I believe some people in America have also questioned that one. I guess the narrative there would be that uh, so he was his services were contracted by the Taiwan government, and uh, the idea there would be that he was working behind the scenes uh, and basically orchestrated this whole thing. It was it was uh, an idea that came from the Taiwan side. Worked with Bob Dole. Bob Dole well, Rob, managed to they, mastermind the whole they thing. They might not have worked with Bob Dole personally, but they apparently the New York Times reported that Dole acted as a foreign agent for the government in Taiwan mm-hmm. in his capacity as a lobbyist with the Washington law firm Austin and Bird. Now, according to the New York Times report, um, Dole's company reportedly received payment of 140000 US dollars from May to October of this year for mm-hmm. the work they did for the Taiwan government. 140000 US dollars is not a lot of money if you really want to lobby for a country, is it? Can you think mm. about Saudi Arabia chucks at America to lobby for it? You know, well, in, the that, big, in the big scheme of things, you know. And pretty much everything we know about those lobbying efforts come from disclosure documents that he uh, gave uh, as per regulations. Um, but the, of course, the Taiwan government did come out and deny that. 
They right, basically, well, they basically said, um, it, while our offices in the United States do use companies to do work for us, this wasn't the case this time. And right. When we hire American companies to do work for us, such as PR work, we do it to the letter of the United States laws. Right. Well, the important point to make is that those disclosure documents did not mention anything about the call. Uh, you know, he was uh, lobbying in a number of other capacities for other Taiwan interests, but they did not mention the call. Uh, the main connection that the New York Times reporting draws between uh, Bob Dole and the call uh, is a quote where he said, uh, you know, when asked about uh, how this call came about, uh, Bob Dole is quoted as saying, it's fair to say that we may have had some influence. Kind of a kind of a weak, but then kind of a weak connection. We is a bit sort of, we had influence. Could be we, me and my mate in the pub, mm-hmm. or my friends over there who I happen to know and speak to once mm-hmm. a week. We's a bit superfluous there, really, isn't it? Right, so we. it's a big ball of speculation at this point. Just to complicate the matter even a little bit further, because I know it's not complicated enough already, right when the news of the call broke, uh, I believe it was the Liberty Times reported that the guy behind the call was one Stephen Yates. Uh, He is a former U.S. national security official and a current advisor to the Trump team. Uh, Now, they were reporting that he was in Taiwan at the time of the call and was instrumental in putting the whole thing together. Turns out he was not in Taiwan. He was in Idaho at the time of the call. Uh, And what's more, when folks actually took the time to call him up and ask, he said, no, I had nothing to do with this. But skip ahead a couple more days, uh, and he actually did arrive in Taiwan on Tuesday, which is kind of interesting. Uh, And since he got here, he, well, he said that it was a private trip that he's taking in his personal capacity. But he has ended up meeting with officials, including President Tsai Ing-wen. So maybe nothing to do with the call, but still getting involved in some capacity in Taiwan politics, Gavin. Kind of interesting. Yeah, that was quite funny because he arrived in town sort of days after the phone call hit the proverbial fan. Mm -hmm. And of course, then he was mobbed when he arrived at Taoyuan International Airport. Mm -hmm. And the press was screaming at him, what do you know about the phone call? And all he had to say was it had nothing to do with me. I'm paraphrasing his answer there, but he basically said it had nothing to do with me. Right. He'd, but he did describe it as a very good beginning to the relationship between the two administrations. Yeah, and he also later uh, did write a defense of the call that I, I, I read in Fox News, I think is where I found that. I guess the main reason, I mean, I don't know what this all adds up to, but uh, the main reason I even bring this up, uh, if we wind the clock back even just a little bit further, uh, we can see that the Republican Party, many in the Republican Party, have been making moves to shore up their support for Taiwan. Going back months and months and months, we can see a lot of deliberate steps. In particular, Stephen Yates apparently was instrumental in uh, putting a number of Taiwan-friendly phrases in the Republican platform that was presented at the convention earlier this year, Gavin. I believe he included something about Ronald Reagan's 1982 Taiwan communiques and also the Taiwan Relations Act. He mm-hmm. mentioned and that the, American, the Republican Party should adhere to these policies, if not push to further those policies right. in their relations with the island. Support for the six key assurances, uh, which also goes back to uh, Ronald Reagan years. Uh, all right. 
That is the big ball of mess and speculation that we've kind of accrued over the course of this week. Uh, I want to get into the actual substance of strategy and policy and what this is going to mean for Taiwan. But before we get to that, let's let's just kind of look at that question of uh, where we think this call probably came from and whether or not it really matters. Like, uh, I, I think many in the U.S. media uh, are portraying Bob Dole's lobbying involvement as something that we should be really concerned about. Uh, I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Is that something that we should necessarily be worried about, given the fact that, as Gavin noted, you know, uh, foreign lobbying efforts are not out of the norm? Well, I I sort of doubt that Bob Dole's organization uh, played a big role or played any role, really. Uh, for one thing, as I understand it, uh, his firm was originally hired by Ma Yingzhou. So whatever money he received, I'm not so sure that that wasn't part of a previous contract. My strong impression is that there are, as you've indicated already, there are many people uh, working around Trump, advising him on Asia policy, including Stephen Yates, uh, Peter Navarro, an economics professor from the University of California at Irvine, who's written three books on China, is a, a, a strong advisor on Taiwan and a passionate supporter of the idea that our policy uh, toward Taiwan should be more forward-leaning. Um, and as you've pointed out, it was a, a key part of the Republican uh, platform. Unfortunately, no one reads it. But what's very interesting <laughs> um, to see, unfortunately, in the sense it would give interesting background, if you look at the uh, President Trump's platform, the section on foreign policy is actually called Foreign Policy and the Defeat of ISIS. Mm. And so half of it is about defeating ISIS. And the other half doesn't talk about any specific regions or countries. It's very brief. In order to find anything about Asia, you have to look at the section on trade, mm. um, where it complains about particularly about China, but also about uh, other countries in, in Asia. Not doesn't mention Taiwan, however. But if you also look then at the Republican platform, it's not only that they emphasize, first of all, it's extremely positive about Taiwan. It's extremely negative uh, and notes that it's much more negative than their earlier platform four years ago about mainland China. In addition, what's most significant about mentioning the six assurances and also the Taiwan Relations Act, it makes no mention whatsoever of either one China policy or of the three communiques. And usually when the State Department and right after when Ben Richards at uh, the White House was asked about it, he said, we continue to adhere to our one China policy based on the three communiques and the Taiwan Relations Act. That was the White House, the current White House response under Obama to Trump's uh, call and the tweets and all that. Right. So the White House took a very traditional posture. And as I've long argued and other people have argued, when you say one China policy, it plays right into China's hands. It's, it's very satisfied with that because it always implies that there's U.S. Uh, that from a U.S. perspective, it believes that China has sovereignty over Taiwan. Yet if you even look at the very first communique in uh, 72, we acknowledge the Chinese the position of the Chinese on both sides of the strait of the Chinese people, that there is one China. Um, the U.S. does not dispute this position. Objectively, that was untrue at the time because nobody asked the people 
on either side of the strait what they thought. It was Mao Zedong during the midst of the Cultural Revolution who called the shots then. And Chiang Kai-shek certainly didn't ask the people in Taiwan what they thought. Beyond that, um, you know, the U.S. specifically, when it had the, uh, the six assurances, said the United States, number six was, the United States would not formally recognize Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan. It also said it was not it would not alter in the fifth one not alter its position about the sovereignty of taiwan which was that the question was to be decided by peacefully by the chinese themselves and it would not pressure Taiwan to enter into negotiations with China. And that's something that a lot of media organizations actually got very wrong, is they said that uh, the U.S. Absolutely. recognizes China's uh, sovereignty over Taiwan. Absolutely. It was the implication, and including from people who should know better but uh, did not, somebody who was awarded the uh, the Order of the Brilliant Star with Grand Cordon, as I was, by President Ma, although I never saw him when I was in Ty- working as AIT, as a real great supporter of of uh, Taiwan. And his overreaction, I thought, was that the Chinese leadership will see this as a highly provocative action of historic proportions. Mm. Uh, With this kind of move, Trump is setting a foundation of enduring mistrust and strategic competition for U.S.-China relations. You know, and other... Are we not going to name names here? No, okay. Uh, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> All right. Well, we won't name names. That's fine. That's fine. But uh, clearly, uh, you 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 dissent from that view. I dissent from that view, and also from you know many liberal newspapers considered the Guardian came out with the uh, reaction Trump's phone call um, with Taiwan President risks China's wrath. Well, do we ever say you know if China builds any more islands? In the South Pacific, it's going to risk U.S. wrath. Or, for example, if China continues to support North Korea, they're risking U.S. wrath. I mean, this kind of language is ridiculous. We ourselves have talked ourselves into a position where we're supposed to worry about Chinese feelings and what they think um, and not adhere to what has always been our actual policy and our own feelings about what is the right thing to do. Mm. All right. So (laughs) I went overboard. That's all right. That's all right. Clearly, uh, you've you've been thinking about this for a while. We can tell right there. Uh, Okay. So Jane, I mean, I I think uh, Bill has laid out a lot of the background very well there. Uh, Take out his name. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing. Another thing that uh, I I would point out in, and we've kind of uh, a little bit touched on this, is that uh, Peter Navarro, uh, who who we've already mentioned as a uh, Trump advisor, along with another guy, uh, Alexander Gray, they came out with an article in Foreign Policy magazine uh, that has been somewhat flagged as uh, a, a, a policy paper, more or less, kind of laying out their views and potentially the Trump administration's views on policy in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and they are bringing up a lot of the points that we just heard from Bill right there uh, and explicitly calling for uh, increased arms sales to Taiwan and a little bit more of an open posture uh, about Taiwan issues. So, uh, you know, despite what a lot of people are saying uh, about this just being a, a one-off incident, there is some potential there, at least, uh, you know, if, if, if these particular advisors hold uh, sway, that this could signal a broader shift in terms of uh, U.S. policy uh, in the region. 
I guess I'll just ask you a simpler question. With all that in mind, with everything that we've discussed, what do you see as the major significance of this call for Taiwan? Well, I think that it's too early to talk about a shift in China policy. And from my memory, Navarro wrote that the basic framework, such as the Taiwan Relations Act and the Six Assurances and um, basic China policy wouldn't change. That's what Navarro wrote, I think. I think we should make a little bit of a distinction between the diplomatic posture that the U.S. is taking towards China and Taiwan and the wording that it's using and things that are broader, like trade deals and where carrier fleets are and all that. Uh, I think we should make a little bit of a distinction between those two things. So like you said, he's not talking about the diplomatic framework. Yes, look, I think it obviously it signals that the um, new administration is going to be friendlier to Taiwan than the past. Mm-hmm. Um, how far they'll go is still an unknown. Um, Trump is basically an unknown in himself, and mm-hmm. um, he's an inexperienced president. And once he gets into the nitty gritty with China, he might be forced to retreat from what he originally intended to do. So I would say the biggest um, signal from this phone call is the, the nature of his Asia advisors. They mm-hmm. tell you something about how they think, mm-hmm. how they see China, how they see Taiwan. But how it's going to evolve, we still don't know because Trump isn't president yet and he's not sort of faced with sort of the stark choices that a president has to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Bill, would you agree with that? Do you, do you see uh, this call as mostly just a, a signal to the world about who the Trump administration is, uh, or does it have a broader strategy significance? Well, I think the the fact that uh, Trump was president is president elect when the call was made, of course, gives people an out. But you know, it's it's amazing that such a fuss has been made about it. After all, uh, remember, uh, Secretary of State Albright went to North Korea, a country with whom we don't, with which we don't have diplomatic relations. And she drank champagne toast with Kim Song Il, Kim Il Sung. Sorry. Also, we've had terrorists like Jerry Adams of the IRA uh, come to the State Department. Um, we have recently we didn't have diplomatic relations with Cuba, but we had a meeting with them. Um, we don't have uh, diplomatic relations with Iran yet. We've signed a nuclear agreement and negotiated with them. So. We have to remember that so many of the rules that we have about what we can or cannot do um, with Taiwan were self-imposed by the U.S. government based on lawyerly advice um, back in 1979 in short order. And many of those rules with time have passed away. I mean, we once had a rule that we wouldn't fly the American flag over AIT, which is ridiculous because we are an American organization And if we were the American uh, Institute of Insurance, we could fly the American flag. So there have been many self-imposed restrictions that don't make sense any longer. Hmm. One of those restrictions used to be that any diplomat who was going to serve at AIT would have to retire, at least seem to retire, uh, when they went to AIT. In 2002, uh, Congress passed legislation and changed that. So Hmm. we have active duty, both diplomats and military people uh, from the U.S. who serve at AIT now. now this so this is, whole idea that everything's written in stone and mm. there can't be any flexibility, I think, is misleading. Now this is pretty interesting because uh, it, it, you, you are somebody that has worked within all of this uh, diplomatic framework and you've, you've danced the diplomatic mumbo-jumbo dance. I mean, I, anybody who looks at this obviously thinks it's ridiculous that you can't say Taiwan's a country when it's got a, a, a government and everything that a country should have. So obviously it's ridiculous. The question is, is there anything to be gained from 
this quote-unquote useful fiction, as some people term it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious where you would draw the line, though, uh, in terms of how far uh, Trump could push this. Had this call been made while Trump was in office, would, would you have said that that would be going too far? Uh, personally, I don't think I would, although um, I think most of the people in the foreign policy establishment would not agree with me. You know, I think, again, it's a self-limitation. I think um, there's a lot of things that are, many of them are outlined in the Republican platform uh, that we could do and that I've advocated that would allow us more flexibility in our relations. For example, many European countries have on a regular basis sent ministers at the cabinet level, cabinet level ministers to Taiwan. And yet in the past 14 years, the U.S. has only uh, sent one. That was the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency director in 2014. And I did everything I could. I managed to get the deputy, uh, deputy secretary of energy to come, uh, one of the undersecretaries of commerce and assistant secretary of commerce. But in general, these things inhibit our very important trading relationship. We have to remember that Taiwan is the ninth largest trading partner of the United States. It's our sixth or seventh largest agricultural market. Uh, we have enormous – it's an enormously important trading partner for us. And for us to ignore that and simply because China doesn't like it – well, China doesn't like the Dalai Lama going to Washington either – um, but he has gone to Washington, and President Obama has received him. So I think these things have to be judged on their merits on a case-by-case basis. But in general, I think we've been too sensitive to Chinese views about what can and cannot be done. I think on a case-by-case basis, there there should be times when there can be greater contact than there is. Hmm. Uh, Jane, what, what, what's your take here? I mean, uh, obviously, many are, like we've said over and over again, uh, a lot of people are very concerned about uh, China's reaction. And we haven't talked too much about how China views this. But obviously, uh, for them, Taiwan is perhaps uh, the, the most sensitive issue uh, in terms of U.S.-China ties and the most uh, sensitive issue, uh, not just for the government, but for the people as well. I mean, uh, just in terms of the way that it's framed uh, in nationalist rhetoric. This, this is a very important, very personal issue to folks in China. Uh, how seriously should we take the sorts of concerns of people who are saying China's going to be mad about this? Um, my short answer is in the short term, not serious. In the long term, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, why I say in the short term is if you actually look at China's reaction and don't look at the media reports, it's actually been fairly muted. Mm-hmm. And there were sort of signs very early on that Foreign Minister Wang Yi, who's been actually been likened to Zhou Enlai by some of the deep blues for his diplomacy. I don't know whether that's justified or not. Mm. Anyway, maybe we should skip that. But um, <laughs> Wang Yi tried to play it down. Today is a day for a historical historical illusions. I love it. There's so many opportunities. Anyway. Well, Wang Yi tried to play it down because he he didn't blame the US. He said Tsai did it. Mm -hmm. And then he said, according to some translations, it was a small trick or as a petty trick. So this thing which has just outraged China and infuriated it, the Mm -hmm. foreign minister has actually said it's a petty trick. Right. So what they're thinking, what China's thinking is they don't know what's going on. They don't Mm -hmm. know if Trump's really inexperienced, that he made a gaffe, this Mm -hmm. is part of a long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. So I think in the short term, China is just going to be trying to sound the US out Mm -hmm. on what its bottom line is and trying to find out what's going on. And we can see this from its um, demands to ban the transit, Mm -hmm. right? It's trying to find out... 
if, if the US does ban the transit, which is very, very unlikely, mm-hmm. it would show that it really is object and it knows it made a mistake. So what China's going to be doing in the short term, I think, is just probing the US government for we- and the incoming administration mm-hmm. you know, for weaknesses and mm-hmm. sort of throwing various scenarios at it and just trying to assess where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. And China likes a predictable environment, so I don't think they're going to make any moves till they've worked out for themselves what's going on. Mm. By the way, uh, you know, given that statement about this being a dirty trick on the part of Tsai, in the same vein as, you know... Petty trick. Petty trick, excuse me. No, he didn't even go as far as saying dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Petty trick, excuse me. Uh, You know, in the same vein as uh, Crooked Hillary and, uh, you know, all all the names that Trump has given, what do you guys feel about Tricky Tsai? Do you think we could make that stick? No, I'm getting... (laughs) But but it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It It could go either way because she's so tricky. Um, I think this was all part of the grand plan between the US and Taiwan. I think that um, that's why I thought it was pre-arranged when I first heard the news because um, the way it's been arranged by Tsai calling Trump, that means if US and China really go south, they can mm-hmm. just say that would Tsai, that the US, you know, they could sort of downplay it and mm-hmm. say, you know, that they, they could even the US could even go as far as saying that Tsai, um, they had nothing to do with it, that Tsai just unexpectedly rang him. Mm. So... Um, yeah, China is trying to um, paint Tsai as tricky, but I think that it really indicates the people who planned the call, both in the US and Taiwan, were quite smart, I think. Mm-hmm. And, although it's very unfortunate for Taiwan because Taiwan will have to take the rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say actually the biggest fear I have is that the mainland government will take it out on Tsai Ing-wen mm-hmm. and try uh, to find other ways to put pressure on Taiwan um, I'm less concerned about the U.S. I think, I think we are going to see a much tougher attitude about trade uh, toward uh, China. After all, I recently read that the cumulative uh, U.S. trade deficit with uh, China, since we, uh, you know, we voted to allow uh, China to enter the WTO, is 3.5 trillion U.S. dollars. I also think that with all these generals coming into the uh, administration uh, of of President-elect Trump, uh, that we're – and talk actually also of a more robust navy, that we're likely to continue to see tensions in the South China Sea. Uh, So I I think we may see problems down the road, but – my position all along on this has been, yes, China can be tough. Nobody wants a war. We all want to avoid that. We want to avoid conflicts. But in many ways, the U.S. has been a little bit too supine um, toward uh, mainland China. And I remember uh, just on the eve of uh, the visit of uh, Xi Jinping in September of 2015, there was an article by Josh Rogan in The Diplomat in which – He said that the U.S. has always had sort of a a bifurcated policy. On the one hand, we we continue to work with China in the hopes that it'll be a uh, basically uh, uh, a cooperative partner uh, internationally and regionally and bilaterally. On the other hand, there's always been an underlying strategic competition that's always been there. And he said increasingly there was the view. Uh, he said right on the eve of the uh, of the visit that that balance was out of whack in the views of most uh, people in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, that the relationship really was 
about to change. There needed to be a shift. Mm. Uh, Jane, how about you wrap, wrap this one up? Yes, well, I just wanted to comment that a lot of analysts are saying that the downside to the phone call is that Taiwan will get punished. And I would agree with Bill that um, US and China are much safer than Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But I would also say in the short term, I actually don't think China will go too far in punishing Taiwan. And the reason is that, as I said, China likes a predictable environment and mm-hmm. it doesn't know what's happened. It doesn't know who's saying when's talking to in Trump's team, the leverage she has. And I think if China goes way too far, mm-hmm. like the military exercise or something like that, and there's another sunflower incident mm-hmm. or some, you know, sunflower movement incident or something, you know, something like that or half a million people turn out in the streets in Taiwan and Tsai goes back to her contacts in the Trump administration, it could get very unpredictable for China because yeah. they don't know about what exactly is going on and how right. much leverage she has. So I would say in the short term, it's going to be, I think China's just going to do its standard operating procedures to Taiwan. Like if it planned to steal a diplomatic ally, it probably will. But I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to up the tensions with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, a lot to look forward to over the next couple of weeks and months uh, as the Trump administration kind of rolls into place. Last point I want to touch in in this first half before we move on to domestic news Uh, U.S. media did indeed have a very strong reaction to the news, as we've discussed uh, at length here. Uh, Later in the week, there was kind of a backlash to the backlash. Uh, Folks, especially in Taiwan or concerned with Taiwan, long-term Taiwan watchers, uh, kind of pointing out some of the shortcomings in the coverage. Uh, So I want to dwell on the U.S. media coverage of this for a second. And if we are talking about media matters in Taiwan, uh, I thought it would be good to get on the line one Michael Turton who is the writer behind Taiwan Current Events blog, The View from Taiwan. So that's what I did, and here's that conversation. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. One thing uh, that you can always find at The View from Taiwan uh, is incisive uh, and uh, perhaps, dare I say, biting criticism, occasionally biting criticism, of the media. Uh, and how that media, how that international media covers Taiwan. Uh, Actually, as a side note, I don't think I've ever told you this, but when I uh, started making this very program, always in the back of my head, I was kind of wondering, when is the day coming where I'm going to mess up and say something that's going to earn me a screed from Michael Turton. (laughs) Luckily, luckily, we haven't gotten big enough uh, to, uh, you know, deign your attention. So luckily, we're still under Michael Turton's radar, but we'll see when the day comes. Still waiting for that. But you did, you did take a whole bunch of other outlets to task uh, last Saturday as the news broke and their coverage kind of came in waves of the call. So uh, just to start out, maybe we could start with what would you say for you would be the, 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 the main criticism? Because, you, you know, you, you took to task uh, the Atlantic uh, courts, Huffington Post, a whole bunch of outlets. What would you say would be like the core criticism you would have for the way that they covered uh, the call? Well, I think um, initially the problem was that they were the the huge media noise acts as a signal that that is teaching China here's something that you should be upset about. And furthermore, uh, not only should you be upset about this, but if you actually become upset and do something, we aren't going to say bad China misbehaving again. We're going to say, see, we told you that this would happen. So uh, the first thing I noticed was the, the, the effect on China, which often doesn't really understand what the U.S. media means or, you know, what's going on in the U.S. And, uh, and the same with Taiwan. Uh, another thing that really uh, 
struck me was the, the instant pushback. A lot of this was just attacking Trump from people who detest Trump. The call wasn't just a signal that Taiwan is going to be upgraded. It wasn't just a signal to, you know, China watchers. Here's Taiwan and we're going we're, we're to increase its status, or hopefully anyway. The call was also a signal to a whole class of people who broker China to the United States. And these people, and sometimes they are in families that, you know, go back and forward generations uh, of dealing with China. And they have a set of very cozy relationships from which they derive status, wealth, power. And the call said, hey, look, guys, things are going to change around here. And all these people looked at their, these cozy arrangements and said, you know, we could be losers here if things got worse. We need to push back. And so they started screaming, and they called their friends in the media, or their friends in the media called them. These are people commonly common in the media. And the result was that there was a massive explosion of noise. And then in the last couple of days, there have been some really excellent pieces. John Pomfret came out, uh, I think, on day do – we, do we date this as, you know – as call BC and AD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I think we, our our new official calendars will be based on the call. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So, call day two AD. Pomfret <laughs> <laughs> came out with a great piece that said basically the same thing: the media is is part of the problem. The media reaction is part of the problem, and uh, that was great. And now, yesterday and today, there have been two excellent pieces: one by Emily Rahala and a couple for associates that I don't remember. And another from uh, another in the New York Times, and both of them have been very. There's been a whole slew of them actually. They've been very positive for Taiwan. The sunflowers were in the Washington Post today. Sun waiting the uh, Lin Jue fan and uh, another woman, who's a young woman, I was name I've forgotten. They were all in the media. T- they were all in the media. All this stuff is now. There's a pushback to the pushback. Hey, wait a second. Taiwan is a, is a very special and interesting place, and Americans don't understand it. And if this is going on with it, things have changed. It's not the Cold War. Well, it's still the Cold War on the far left, but, you know, what can you do about that? And, uh, and this is good. So the last four days have seen what looked originally like all the crap we saw 15 years ago, and now suddenly it's become really good stuff that is pushing back and really helping Taiwan's image. I think this is great. I'm very happy with the call and most of its aftermath. Mm. Putting aside those conflicts of interest, you know, the, what, what, what really raises some questions about some of the conflicts of interest that uh, you were raising there a second ago, putting that aside, um, I, I think I do feel a certain sense of, sense of empathy for uh, broad swaths of the media. I mean, this is not an issue that they tend to think deeply on. They don't really, th- in, in general, they are very dependent on uh, these experts that come to them. Uh, and, right. and, and also, I mean, it is reasonable to say that uh, China may react to this negatively. That, that's a reasonable thing to bring up. Given that, what, what, what do you, in your opinion, what would be a more uh, thoughtful way to discuss China's reaction, to discuss uh, the way that China may react to it, and how it could complicate uh, the U.S. and its role in the Pacific? Well, the first thing you want to do is not anticipate what China's... The first thing you want to do is not say that China's going to go ballistic. You just want to say there's some possibility of this. But you also have to lard that with reasons why China won't go ballistic. Number one, our two economies, the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy, are, and the Taiwanese economy, are deeply intertwined, right, through, uh, in, in many different ways. You want to point out that if China doesn't, if China doesn't want to get on the 
Trump administration uh, bad side even further, then uh, it shouldn't react too strongly. And you also want to point out but that China might did not do anything as actually said eventually, because Trump was only the president-elect. He's not the president-elect yet. So this was very cleverly and deliberately timed. Trump's not the president, so it, so it doesn't really count. China can ignore it. And it's only a phone call. It's a symbolic act. And the media should have pointed out, instead of saying, it's disturbed 40 years of protocol, what they should have said, here's a symbolic act. And China has the opportunity to react symbolically, which it did. And nothing concrete has happened. There's no bombs falling. Trade wasn't cut off. Students aren't being sent home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Life is going on as normal. And you also pointed out a lot of the factual errors in terms of uh, how the U.S.'s official stance towards Taiwan was portrayed in the media. Uh, a lot of claims about, uh, you know, the U.S.'s stance on Taiwan sovereignty weren't quite represented quite correctly. At the same time, there again, I feel a little bit of empathy for these folks because the U.S.'s stance is deliberately ambiguous. And so if you're covering something deliberately ambiguous, that's a, that's a big set of issues to get your head around in a fly, in a flurry, as this thing is, you know, kind of exploding as a story. For your wish list of, you know, ways that the media could prepare for the next time Taiwan comes up in the news, what, what would you like to see from these media outlets do to be able to provide smarter coverage? One is to contact people who are in Taiwan, which wasn't done the first couple of days. And the second thing is to uh, contact people who are in the administration. They should already have a list who are familiar with U.S. policy. A lot of the media were saying that the U.S. one-China policy makes Taiwan part of China. Of course, that's completely false. And that was an easy thing to find the correct answer to. But they didn't ask anyone who actually knew. Uh, another issue I've been noticing is a lot of people are saying, a lot of news outlets are saying the 1992 consensus actually occurred in Singapore. I've gotten to the point where I don't even comment on that anymore. It's just so, it's just so impossible to stop. These are the kinds of things that could be solved in an instant if people would pick up the phone and call someone like J. Michael Cole, right? Or someone, you know, who's, who interacts with the media and knows these things. But they didn't do that. There were no Taiwan voices the first couple of days. That is, I think, the number one thing that I would like to see, more interaction of Taiwan voices with the media. All right. We have been speaking here to Michael Turton. He runs The View from Taiwan that makes all of us media types cower in fear each and every day that we try to cover Taiwan. Michael, uh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks, Keith. I really appreciate it. All right. So uh, the hot take from Michael Turton there. Uh, Bill, what would you add to all that? Uh, well, you know, Michael Turton... Uh, truly understands Taiwan. I, I always enjoy reading his blog. Um, I think he's absolutely right about that. I think the uh, media reaction has been so overblown. And I think it's also true that an awful lot of the people who take the side of mainland China do have business interests there. A key and famous example would be Henry Kissinger, who's Kissinger's associates. He's been the biggest promoter of the China relationship, even though when he was first sent to China, he knew nothing about it. But he's made some 50, at least 50 visits. Maybe there are more by now. He just recently was again in China, uh, apparently to try to explain the call to uh, Xi Jinping and what was the future, or at least the future of the Trump uh, government uh, 
in its dealings with China. But he has set up Kissinger Associates, which is a huge portion of their business is based on advising companies that want to do business in China. Right. So, you know, if we're going to talk about Taiwan's lobbying efforts, if we're going to talk about tangled business interests uh, on the Taiwan side, then we at least need to acknowledge some of the things that you're mentioning right there. Yeah, in fact, there have been articles uh, written also, for example, about how the Ivy League schools and many of the best universities in the United States, so many of the sons and daughters of Central Committee members and Politburo members have been accepted to these schools because of the influence that they hold. Of course, we also see that companies like uh, uh, Morgan Stanley and uh, J.P. Morgan and others um, have been investigated by the Justice Department for giving jobs to unqualified sons and daughters of prominent political figures in China. Uh, there's untold amount of influence going on as a result of these kinds of contacts. Mm. Uh, all right. And uh, Jane, being a, a media figure yourself, uh, <laughs> what what is your take on all this? Um, I don't really have – I would agree with much of what Bill just said. I don't have much to add except I think in general the media reporting has been shonky, whether it's been pro-China or just drumming up conspiracy theories about Trump. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, I think one of the inadvertent winners from the phone call is the Taoyuan Atropolis project because mm -hmm. everyone's going to think it's a great investment and destination. But another winner is Bob Dole's lobbying firm. Because, mm. <laughs> like, I read that and I thought, I mean, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm sure you know the Republican Party more than I do because you're American. But um, I had no idea that Bob Dole was that powerful. Yeah, he just <laughs> orchestrated the whole thing. Yeah, he's the puppet with the strings. Kind of. <laughs> I think he's in his 90s. Yeah, he's, yeah, I believe he's 96. Yeah, I mean, I know that that's just a howler. But I think Bob Dole's lobbying firm is going to be a winner from this. Mm -hmm. Everyone will want to hire him now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so puppet master Bob Dole. That's If you're going to keep your eyes on the prize, that's what you got to look out for. Okay, and we're going to uh, cut off our coverage of The Call right there. Uh, that is the first half. When we return to the show, well, it was a big week for domestic news here as well. We've got labor, we've got food safety, we've got Uber. Uh, it's almost like folks here didn't know it was the end of the world. So uh, we'll take a look at all of that when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Bill Stanton, and Jane Rickards. Jumping back in, and the legislative yuan finally passed something this week. But it sure seems uh, like not a single person is happy about it, nonetheless. We're talking here about the controversial amendments that will put in place a 40-hour work week for Taiwan. Uh, this move is touted as a huge advancement for workers' rights by the Thai administration, but the amendments uh, have been the subject of heated debate and legal wranglings, sometimes actual physical wranglings as well. Uh, we've seen Thai flip-flop one way, then flip-flop another way multiple times over the past six months, trying to uh, appease all the various interest groups that have gotten their hackles up in the process. It seems like uh, Thai has uh, settled on a final formulation for all this, and uh, this formulation is exactly the magic formula to anger everybody just about in equal portions. Uh, labor, labor groups have been out protesting. Opposition lawmakers uh, were occupying podiums this week. Industry groups have also blasted parts of the bill in the strongest of terms. So, uh, Gavin, where do we begin with all this? Uh, that's a good question. Um, we, could begin, <coughs> we could begin with how it was passed. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, it was passed in a rather, I would call it, 
a, a physical way, let's call mm-hmm. it for the sake of argument. This was a contact sport. This was a very, very, <laughs> yeah, this, Death Race 2000, eat your heart out, because this was actually in the legislature where there were mm-hmm. actual physical and verbal altercations prior to the DPP ramming this bill home, and it was rammed home after after KMT lawmakers, in fact, withdrew from the legislative chamber mm. in protest. That was, of course, after there had been several scuffles and several lawmakers were injured during those scuffles earlier this week. Mm-hmm. when they read the, In fact, to, to take a little of a sidebar here, apparently one KMT lawmaker is now filing attempted murder charges against a DPP <laughs> lawmaker. Ooh. Due to these scuffles that took place in the legislative chamber. Well, that's how you know they meant it. You know, if it, they didn't mean it unless it was attempted murder. Yeah. Anyway, again... We could go back even further, though. Uh, going back to last Friday, Kurji and Ming. Uh, he was mobbed outside. He was assaulted and nearly thrown to the floor. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he got up and walked on. So that wasn't, that wasn't lawmakers. So they didn't mean it. Yeah, that was a, that was that a was, labor That group. was labor rights groups. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you labor, laborers, physical, you know. Exactly. Lawmakers aren't meant to get this physical. They, they have a history of it in Taiwan, so, you know, exactly. it shouldn't come as a surprise. Anyway, that's how they passed the law. Now, the controversial law cuts the number of national holidays for the private sector from 19 to 12, and that's in line with the public sector. It also ensures that employees are entitled to two days off every week. However... While one of these days is a mandatory day off, the other is a flexible day off, which, of course, means if your boss wants you to go to the office, to the workplace, to the hole in the ground you're digging, to wherever, he can ask you to go there, and if you go, you will receive overtime pay. Slightly more overtime pay than you did before when you did Mm -hmm. overtime. Now, the amendment also provides employees with more annual leave days than previously allowed, although this when you say it sounds really good but when you actually look at it on paper there's a sudden burst of additional annual leave days for the private sector when you parallel it against the public sector but then the public sector takes over again until they all even out after about 25 years mm-hmm. so it sounds like it's done the workers proud but unfortunately many workers don't agree with this and in fact it's also caused controversy as calls they've said that transport rates will rise mm-hmm. so bus fares and train fares will go up because of course the train companies and the bus companies will have to pay the workers that work the extra day now more money Mm-hmm. Let's just unpack a couple of the, uh, of the points that you just made to explain why labor is unhappy with this. So, of course, 40-hour work week overall, you know, this is a good thing for labor. But the points that they're annoyed with were, were uh, what you were calling the flexible day. That was something that they didn't want to see in this. They also didn't want to see those seven holiday cuts. Uh, and they saw it as something as a slap in the face that uh, both of those things were put through. Uh, Brian Hugh of uh, New Blue Magazine, who's been on the show a number of times, uh, he is wont to point out the fact that Taiwan has among the highest number of working hours for uh, any country in the world. It's over 2,000. I think it's in the top two or three. So his point is Taiwan workers are already vastly overworked. Um, the fact that uh, the Taiwan government is not taking a much stronger line is, in his view, rather egregious. And uh, in his writings over the last couple of days, he's said that uh, many in labor uh, really do see this as a huge setback. Uh, and they were not, you know, uh, they, 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 they were not mollified by the fact that uh, there was increased annual leave uh, in the mix. Uh, another point that uh, has the NPP's hackles up is the fact that the fines that can be put on corporations uh, who violate these labor laws have been reduced somewhat. 
Uh, so that would be another point of contention. Uh, on the other end of things, a number of industry groups uh, are complaining about the fact that they were not consulted in the increased annual leave proposal there. Uh, they're saying that the, that annual leave will increase costs uh, by quite a bit, and they don't understand why they weren't consulted. So everybody is at least a little bit angry here. Uh, Jane, as uh, somebody who follows Taiwan's economy and uh, has is somewhat steeped in these issues, what do you take away from all this? Okay, well, in the bigger picture, I think this illustrates the fact that Taiwan needs to move towards maturity as a democracy. And um, I recently wrote a long story about the economy for AmCham. And what a lot of economists said was that um, the idea that everybody should have a say and everyone needs to be taken care of means that there's often nothing gets done. Mm. And um, presidents often become very unpopular right. by standing in the middle ground and exactly the same thing happened with Ma Ying-jeou mm-hmm. and there have been criticisms from Labor groups and the KMT that the DPP is be- being authoritarian by using its majority to pass the amendments. I think that's what normally happens in a mature democracy when a party has an elected lawmakers have a majority. Majority violence is the yes. term that they're using. Yes, well I would really question that mm-hmm. and um, I think that there has to be compromise Mm-hmm. And I think that because of Taiwan's history and because of martial law, people are so sensitive about their individual rights or their collective rights being trodden on mm-hmm. that I think it's hard for Taiwan to sort of get past this mm-hmm. and move on to maturity. And that's very important if the economy has to function properly. So that's the bigger picture. On the flip side, I think yes. that Labor would point out that a number of the uh, committee hearings uh, were held in kind of a sneaky way. They weren't held in the room that uh, they were supposed to be held in. Uh, so the Labor movement would say that uh, the DPP was trying to circumvent the opposition. Uh, and, and, and so I think that their point would be, uh, you know, the DPP had a chance to kind of suss this out and, and uh, consult with uh, various interest groups, consult with the opposition, and uh, they failed to do so. Uh, what what would you make of all that? Um, I would just say this dispute's been going on for four months and the counter-argument to that could be that there'd be such chaos if they did try to do that that mm-hmm. they they ha- they felt they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was told by... It does s- seem like a zero-sum game. Yes. Yeah. I know, and that's the problem with Taiwan politics at the moment, especially when it comes to the economy, that mm-hmm. if they come up with policies to stimulate the economy, they get changed or altered or don't happen at all because of you know the sort of chaos in the legislature right. and with protests. But what um, a senior cabinet to- official told me was that the government sees the labour problems as one of the biggest short-term problems for the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think businesses threaten to go offshore... Mm-hmm. And um, this has been going on for a while, but um, I think the Ma government decided to cancel the seven holidays. Then the DPP government promised to reinstate them. Then in July, um, many um, prominent industry groups, including the Chinese National Federation of Industries, actually said they would boycott discussions with the government in the future mm-hmm. unless the government promised to axe the seven holidays. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, behind the scenes, there's very real pressure on the government to um, pass these amendments or else either face um, being stonewalled by business or even business might make good on their threats and go offshore. Mm-hmm. And Labor groups say business always threatens to go offshore whenever their rights get taken away and maybe that's true. But I think the government feels a, sense, a big sense of urgency about this. And in addition, a lot of economists told me that the big complaint, they've heard big complaints from business that the Sai government is anti-business. So, yeah, Ms. Um, President Tsai and the DPP is really caught between a rock and a hard place. 
Wow, anti-labor and anti-business at the same time. They don't like anybody, this Tsai administration, apparently. All right, well, uh, we can get into that uh, note about uh, Taiwan politics uh, and how janky the whole system is, uh, because the next story also uh, touches on another very sensitive issue in Taiwan politics, another zero-sum game. Food safety. Folks in Taiwan are, of course, unhappy about working hours, but they're also worried about food safety, uh, specifically about the potential of opening up food imports from radiation-affected areas of Japan, an issue that we've discussed many times at length on the show. Uh, Responding to that concern, though, KMT lawmakers are now threatening a recall campaign for DPP lawmakers uh, that support this opening up. So, you know, DPP lawmaker votes in favor of opening up to these imports. We're going to recall them, is what uh, many of these KMT lawmakers are saying. In a separate move, uh, the party's vice chairman, Hao Longbin, has launched a civil alliance uh, as what is being called the first step in a campaign to call a national referendum on food safety. Gavin? Yeah, Hao Longbin started the Vote for Food Safety Alliance, or WUFSA, <laughs> as we could call it. Rolls out the tongue. Anyway, he inaugurated that on Wednesday of this week in Taipei, and he said he came out and said in Taipei, when he said, this is my alliance, we're going to do it, he came out and said the planned referendum will seek to ask the public whether they support or reject a proposal to ease the ban on food products from areas of Japan affected by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear meltdown. Hmm. Now... He proposed a national referendum on it last week, and of course this week he came out and said we're going to do it, and he now said that he's going to set about collecting the minimum 94,000 signatures in 30 days or less needed to make the proposal official. Apparently when he came out and said this this week, he said he's already got about 24,000 of those signatures. About of a quarter of the way there almost. Yeah, basically, because they need about 0.5% of the total electorate of the last presidential election for actually the referendum paperwork to go through. Which comes out to be 94,000, as you said. 94,000 about, but how long being said, oh, actually, I'm looking for 95,000. Oh, uh, yeah. So he wants to get the extra time. <laughs> Just go a little bit over the uh, finish line there. Yeah, he joined, of course. And, of course, the former health minister, Young Jirliang, also came out in support of this, as did hmm. several civic groups. Hmm. But I believe, Bill, you've had some run-ins with... Mr. Howe and food safety over the years? Uh, Yes, I have. I mean, it's deja vu all over again. Uh, I remember that uh, it was Hao Longbing, of course, who started putting stickers on restaurants showing a crazy American cow. It had an American flag draped over it to warn people, uh, to assure people that there was no U.S. beef being served in those stores. And after seven years of negotiations... um, both China and France made a mistake by allowing it to come to a vote where they thought they had enough votes to defeat it, but the World Animal Health uh, Organization, by a fairly small margin, decided that U.S. beef, even if it had ractopamine, if it was less than 10 parts per billion, uh, was safe to eat. And, of course, Americans eat. Americans don't know when they're eating it anyway, but... Um, there's been no uh, there have been no deaths from eating American beef ever. In any case, he used it as a political tool, in my view. I was frequently reassured when I was at AIT and there was a KMT administration that from their perspective, they all privately told me they loved U.S. beef. They ate it all the time. When they lived in the States, they ate it. Their families liked it. Um, there was no problem with it, but you know it was those awful fellows in the DPP. Of course, now that the KMT is out of power, now it's all about food safety. And we've got to reintroduce tougher regulations because of those Japanese. 
The problem Taiwan faces is a, is a big one because if it's going to adopt these attitudes about food imports, it's not going to be able to achieve the kind of free trade agreements with countries, the two most important uh, candidates for free trade with Taiwan are the United States and Taiwan. Now, Taiwan's economy is 70.1% or beyond that now, dependent on exports and goods and services. The U.S., in contrast, is the major country with the smallest dependency, only 13.5%. And most of those exports go to Canada and Mexico, to the EU, and then to China. So if Taiwan wants to enter into these trade agreements, it's going to have to come up with a decision that it will abide by safety measures, regulations that assure food safety, but at the same time are not actually intended to just inhibit imports. Because you can't be a trading nation so dependent on exports and then say, well, we don't want any imports of food. Um, Taiwan, I always keep on reminding people that f agriculture in Taiwan represents about 1.9% of Taiwan's GDP. It is not an important sector relative to others. And they have to begin to accept international standards for food safety. Um, that's what other countries do. So, you know, I, I think this is bad for Taiwan. It's bad for its own trade interests. It's bad for its total dependency now or near total dependency. At least 40% of their exports go to Hong Kong and, and China. Those that go to Hong Kong pass on to China. So I, I think it's not a great issue for either the KMT or the DPP to play foot, political football with they really need to be a bit more mature about this and realize what the larger stakes are for Taiwan's trade. Mm. And then the government has actually said it has no immediate plans to open Taiwan's market from food products from five Japanese prefectures which were contaminated following the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. And I don't know how many times the government has actually come out with that sentence over the past several months. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but that just is kind of reflective of the fact that the uh, the general public doesn't believe them, I no, think. No, they don't. They, 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 there was a study done, although, of course, when they were thinking of opening up Taiwan to food from these areas in two stages. Right. And they did cite, we're going to use scientific evidence before we open anything up. Right. Uh, but uh, as we discussed last time on the show and as uh, Bill was hinting at there, uh, this is, in fact, a sticking point in trade negotiations between Taiwan and Japan. Uh, and if Taiwan doesn't open up to uh, Japan food imports, uh, it would really make those trade negotiations very difficult, which, you know, maybe from the KMT's perspective, isn't the worst thing in the world if opening up successful trade relations also becomes harder. But that's just speculation on my part. We uh, can import more safe food from mainland China. There we go. That's Oh, facetiousness. That's what we want in the show. More facetiousness. Thank you, sir. I, we, Sorry. We're not, we're not, we're not going to give a, a direct uh, ruling on whether or not that was in serious or not. We'll just let that one be ambiguous. We're going to have to move on, though, to a kind of a related story in some ways. Uh, last up for the broadcast, ride-hailing app Uber is facing its largest challenge yet from Taiwan's government after the legislature's transportation committee decided to move forward with a new rule that would increase fines for drivers caught giving illegal rides. That is, all Uber rides. Uh, well, it will increase them more than ten times over, Gavin. 
Yeah, it's going to con- increase the fines to a maximum 25 million NT. Currently, the fines are 50,000 to 150,000 NT, but now they're going to up the fines to 100 between 100,000 NT and a total maximum fine of 25 million NT. Wow. This is obviously because the government is sick of Uber, basically, and taxi drivers are sick of Uber. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The bill also stipulates that operators who violate these laws could be forced to shut down, and it also states that individuals caught driving for any rideshare company face a fine and could also lose their vehicle registration and driving licenses it's also this is this is the bit that worries me it establishes a reward system to encourage the reporting of illegal transportation service practices mm-hmm. which means anyone can snitch anyone in Gonna... I, I don't like these reward systems. I don't think they're very good. That's just a personal opinion. Now, you trans- don't like snitches. No, I don't. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> so a mate of mine gives me 50 NT to take him to work in a car. Secondly, I've got a ride-sharing service. But let's I, move on. I, I promise serious. I wouldn't snitch you out. Yeah. I promise. But Transport Minister Her Chen Dan came out with this week, and he actually explained yep. why they're doing it. He basically said, look, we're seeking to curb Uber's illegal taxi services mm-hmm. because, A, the company is in, in violation of the law because it's only registered as an information service company, not a transportation company. Yep. B, the company doesn't pay pa- tax in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Great. So it operates and doesn't pay tax. You know, if it's a great a company, business model. It's a great... <laughs> If you're, if, if you're Donald Trump, I guess it is, yeah? <laughs> oh, they're more facetiousness. There we go. And also the company, the drivers apparently, this is, called, this is according to the transport minister, apparently Uber's drivers do not have insurance as transportation drivers. So mm-hmm. th- there's a question over if you're, in a, if you're in an Uber taxi, it's involved in a, a horrific accident that hospitalizes you, mm-hmm. then... Is the can the driver? He said the driver has no insurance. So right. what's going to happen? On the flip side of things, uh, Uber Technologies uh, Asia Pacific Regional General Manager Mike Brown was in town this week, kind of leading the charm offensive for the company. Uh, they held a press conference, I believe, on Wednesday, maybe Tuesday. Uh, anyway, it was before the bill uh, was reviewed. They were, but they knew it was coming, and so they were kind of trying to head it off. Uh, and they were warning that the bill threatens technological innovation in Taiwan. That's the line they're taking on it. It's a taxi company. If they said it affects the use of diesel engines, I could understand that. Mm-hmm. It's, a te- it's a car company. Well, their point would be that this is an innovative way to provide taxi services, and the current regulatory framework in Taiwan obviously doesn't allow for it, but they say that they've worked with other countries around the world to amend regulations to make it possible for Uber to operate there legally and pay taxes. Oh, right. Apparently, this is an interesting thing I read this week, apparently there are 10,000 Uber drivers in Taiwan at the moment. That's a, that's a that's rather a large number. That's a lot of Uber drivers, actually, yeah. And apparently, according to Uber itself, mm-hmm. the company's app has been downloaded one million times here in Taiwan. That's also a rather large number. Okay, so uh, the scope of the Uber issue is rather large, as we've just hinted at, but uh, the uh, the government seems to really be going for the throat at this point. I mean, if they really do follow through with those fines, if they really do follow through with actually taking licenses away, this could really be the last nail in the Uber coffin. They've you know been facing a lot of fines before, but if they're taking away the uh, licenses of drivers, nobody's going to be willing to become an Uber driver. Uh, so, uh, Jane, I mean, how seriously uh, do you think uh, we should take this criticism that Uber is making, that this is a threat to technological innovation in Taiwan? Um, well, I just point out first that the amendments are in committee, right? And right. we don't know for sure if they'll be passed. 
Um, I think that um, Uber's basically right, and I think that this is yet another example of how it's difficult for ruling parties and presidents to stake out the middle ground in Taiwan, that Tsai Ing-wen is once again torn between presenting Taiwan to the rest of the world as a technologically innovative nation and pleasing taxi drivers, which form a large part of the DPP's support base. Mm-hmm. And it's clear the taxi drivers have been putting pressure on people like Ke Jinping, and that's why these amendments have come up. Mm-hmm. So I would agree that it... I would agree with Uber. Mm-hmm. What's an incident? This is a, a, a taxis. Taxi drivers, like you said, Jane, have complained about it, yeah? Now, a few years ago, a, a taxi company, a well-known taxi company in Taiwan, used to have a policy. Of if you rang them before you got a taxi, you got 10% off your journey if it was over a certain distance, yeah? Now, other taxi companies didn't like this. So instead of actually going, hey, look, we can offer 15% off, we'll undercut them. They went to the government and the government had to ban the said taxi company from doing the 10% off. Right. The government has, uh, the current government, uh, coming up to the current day, uh, has made some proposals to make a regulatory framework for Uber or other ride-hailing apps. Um, But within their proposal, they were saying that nobody could offer services for less than the price of, you know, the yellow cab taxi industry. Uh, So it does seem like maintaining that price floor, like we just heard Gavin talking about right there, is very important to the taxi drivers and very important to the government as well. Of course, taxi drivers used to go to war here. Oh, yeah. Quite literally go to war here. Yeah. Taxi companies in New Taipei were renowned. Rambunctious bunch. Clashing Mm -hmm. at least once every six months Mm -hmm. with large pointy objects and wooden bats. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, I wonder what what regulation that's covered by. That probably just comes standard. Probably just come standard. Pointy stick. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, uh, we are going to round out uh, the broadcast portion of our show and move on to our bonus podcast interview. Uh, Gavin has it for us. Uh, It's a bit of a crapshoot today. It is a bit of a crapshoot. It's about bathroom hygiene. Now you've now now you've heard of governments getting into your bedroom. This is governments getting into your. Bathroom. Don't like that at all. No, because they don't want you to put your used toilet paper <laughs> in the bin next to your toilet anymore. They're coming for our bins. They want you to flush it down the toilet. Huh, what and a novel in, concept. Just in case anyone that's listening to this story thinks that I'm actually talking absolute crap. Ha! Ah. <laughs> for now, In Taiwan, it's long been seen that when you go to the bathroom to do your number twos, you don't put toilet paper down the toilet, you put it in a bin next to the toilet. Now, of course, this has long been seen as what you do, because once upon a time, of course, sewage systems and toilets in Taiwan couldn't cope with toilet paper. Now, of course, it's 2016, mm-hmm. and toilets and drainage systems and, of course, toilet paper now degrades. It's designed to break up, mm-hmm. and, well, people in Taiwan are still doing it. But there was a great quote from a KMT lawmaker this week, lawmaker Lu Shou-Yen, who was in the legislative chamber after the fights. This was two days, this was a day after the fights. Mm-hmm. She turned around and said, look, i got a problem. I want to know why Taiwan and China are among the few areas in the world where toilet paper cannot be flushed. And that was something the lawmaker described as an indicator of being less developed. Mm-hmm. So there um, you go. Now the Environment Minister, Li Yingyuan, came out and instead of going, oh, yeah, I know, don't worry about it, it's pe- you know, people die with, with you know, ignoring the comment and sort of brushing it off, came out and actually said a great line. He came out and said, 
Yes, we're going to launch a campaign to encourage people to flush used toilet paper down the crapper. And we're also going to make this part of an effort to improve bathroom hygiene across the island. Bathroom hygiene. And wait for this. This is brilliant. His agency will now come up with a campaign to encourage the flushing of toilet paper within three months. Okay. They put a time frame on it. They're serious (laughs) about where they want you to put your dirty used toilet paper. Who says the government can't get anything done? There you go. There you go. Let's see. Can we come up with a slogan for this? Uh, uh, bounce the bins. Bindle the bins. Okay. I, I can't come anything on a family program at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this has been a long, uh, long so our, time strange future. Are, are our guests flushers or dumpers? I'm a, I'm a lifelong flusher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jane, you're, Me you're too. Under, okay. All right. I was going to say you're under no requirement to answer that question, but uh, glad you did. So big changes coming to Taiwan, clearly we can see right here. I'm going to go. I don't know if you've got a obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh, yeah. yeah. You never throw any of it away. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh, dear. We will have to leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes and a couple of other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi. Also joined, of course, by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Hey, good night. Also joined by Bill Stanton. Thank you, Bill. Good night. And joined by Jane Rickards. Thank you, Jane. Good night, Keith. And one last time, I would like to give another thank you to the good folks over there at Slate's Trump Cast. Uh, you can find them online and all the uh, places that I mentioned you could find our podcast and a whole bunch of others. Uh, so uh, a, a great way to keep on top of the ins and outs of all things Trump, Slate Magazine's Trumpcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.